if you would, please turn your uh, Bibles to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, following with verses 38 through 40. That is First Chronicles, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and verses 38 through 40. And it reads as follows. <clears throat> now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag, while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him at war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen. Now 38 through 40. <clears throat> All these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with full intent to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking. For the brothers had made preparation for them, and also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Please be seated. Thank you for being with us today. Such beautiful singing this morning. I want to thank you for that, Jonathan, for leading us and for you and your participation and for the very fine prayers and scripture reading and all that have taken a part in our worship today. Thank you for your service and leading us in worship. We're happy to have you if you're visiting with us. We're always pleased that you've come our way and invite you to come back whenever you possibly can. We're always happy to have our guests. We'll be with each other again tonight at 6 o'clock, Lord willing, and I'll be speaking, as I mentioned in the bulletin, about another one of my favorite passages from Isaiah. It'll be Isaiah chapter 1, 18 through 20. And I hope that you'll be with us as we continue to study selections out of this great Old Testament book. Uh, please remember our gospel meeting. Our elders will make announcements regarding that, and I hope that you'll listen intently as they do, but I hope that you'll uh, remember April the 24th through the 27th and that you'll be a part of our gospel meeting. Brother Rick Brumbach is going to be with us this year, and we all look forward to our gospel meeting. It's kind of an exciting time for us at Broadway, and, and uh, a lot of activities that take place during that week, and so I hope you're marking that on your calendar for our spring gospel meeting, April 24th through the 27th. That'll be Sunday through Wednesday night. As was read this morning from the scriptures, First Chronicles chapter 12, a book of the Bible we rarely study, we see something of the life of David and what a great military man he was. And as you read First Chronicles 12, 1 and 2, and then I ask verse 38 through 40 also be read, and thank you for reading that. It tells us something of the importance of David and his army. And I want to talk about that today. I wanted to study with you about David's army. And then, after that discussion, I want to consider the church, the army of God today. And I'd like to look at some comparisons between the two. 
and hopefully we'll be able to learn what God wants us to know and, and apply that to our lives. David was such a great man in the Old Testament, such a great individual. He's one of the sons of Jesse in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You read something of his life, and God had rejected Saul because of Saul's stubbornness and rebellion. And God was going to anoint a new king. And he tells Samuel, don't be grieved over Saul. But I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And there I'm going to show you which one to anoint. And as each one of the sons came by, Samuel thought in his mind, now this surely must be the new king of Israel. For example, Eliab walked by. And Samuel looked at Eliab and he thought, this would be a great king right here. But God said, it's not Eliab. And then Abinadab walks by. And Samuel looked at Abinadab and he thought, this would make a great king. God said, no, it's not Abinadab. God tells Samuel, now God looks on a man's heart. He says, I don't look on the outward appearance like you do. I look on the inside of the individual to his heart and see what kind of person he, he actually is. And all the sons of Jesse walked by. And none of them were the sons to be anointed. And Samuel turns to Jesse and says, do you have any other sons? He said, well, we've got one more, the youngest. He's out tending the flock. And Samuel says, go get him, bring him in here. We're not going to sit down until we anoint him king of Israel. Now when David came before Samuel, the Bible describes him as having a, a ruddy complexion and beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. But God, you see, was looking on the inside of this man. He could see that this was a man who was walking after God's own heart. He knew the heart of David. And God told Samuel, anoint this one. This will be the new king of Israel. And David is anointed by Samuel with a horn of oil. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. From that day forward, he became the great king that we read about in the pages of the Bible and one of the great figures that we read in the pages of all the Old Testament, King David. You see, God knew David's heart. He knows your heart. He knew what kind of man David would be and how David would be devoted in serving God, just like he knows what kind of person you are and whether you're here really in devotion to him or not. He knows that. He knows whether your heart's really in this worship service or not. He knows whether my heart's in this worship service or not. We can't fool God. On one occasion, 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, it is said of the heart of Solomon that his wives moved his heart away from God. And he no longer served God and he no longer reverenced God. God knows what kind of heart we have. David was such a great Old Testament character. He was a warrior, shepherd, poet, musician. He was a king. He had so many talents about him. One of Saul's men said about David on one occasion that he was a man of valor, prudent in speech, and the most important thing of all, 
God is with him. In Psalm 78 and verse 70, God tells David, You were not royalty, but I took you from the sheepfold. You were herding sheep, and I made you king of Israel. Look at what God could do with a shepherd. You made him king, perhaps the greatest king that Israel had. Seven years at Hebron, 32 and a half years at Jerusalem. David would take the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and move the capital of Israel to the city of peace, the city of Jerusalem. And there he would set up the capital, became the center of the people of Israel for generations to come, the city of Jerusalem. He had a mighty army helping him do that. Look if, uh, for a moment at our scripture reading today. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 8. You see, David could not build the temple. He was a man of blood. He had shed too much blood, and God had said, you're not going to build the temple. Your job was going to be to defeat the enemies of God, and he did a very good job of that. When he defeated them, some of them wanted to join him, such as the Gadites in verse 8. From the Gadites there went out over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, experts with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Extremely talented men who were able to do the job that God needed them to do. Notice verse 32. I'm in First Chronicles chapter 12. Of Issachar, men had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Two hundred chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. These sons of Issachar, uh, they were very talented type of men. They could look at the times. They were astrologers. They could see if it was going to rain or not. They could see if it was going to be a new moon or not. And they would use that to strategize as to whether to go out into battle here or to go out into battle over there. They were very talented individuals. David used all of them to the benefit of his work and all that God wanted him to do. These Gadites were such capable men that they could swim and ford the Jordan even when it was out of bank, go and fight on the other side when no one would expect them to be there, and then swim back on the other side of the Jordan. Bible says they could use... Uh, their spears with either hand. They could use their sword with either hand or their shield with either hand. They were talented people and David drew them in in order to do what God wanted them to do and to accomplish all that God wanted them to accomplish. These particular individuals were capable fighters. And for that reason, this great man of God was able to defeat the enemies of God as God wanted him to defeat them and accomplish all that he wanted to accomplish with regard to God and his people. Well, there's an army that fights today, and it's called the church. The church is a different kind of army. I selected for my understanding on this 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I suppose when you turn to that particular passage, you'll recognize it as well. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the one body, the church, and all that are important in that one body. One of the things that he makes very clear, 
as just as David had individual, talented, skillful people in his army to accomplish what God wanted them to accomplish, so it is with the church that the church has very capable, skilled individuals, and every one of them is valuable in the work which God has given the church to do. Let's spend a moment or two studying out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because the context is so important for our understanding. In the first part, he gives instructions about spiritual gifts, which they had in that day, and we don't have in this day, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But they did then. And he gives instruction regarding that matter in the first part of chapter 12. He comes on down to verse 12, and that's where I'll begin the reading. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now what he's saying there is he's talking about the unity of the body of Christ and how important everyone was and is. And he says in verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized. You see, the gospel of Christ was revealed by the Spirit of God. And when men and women read and understood the revelation given by the Spirit of God, they're motivated to be baptized. They were baptized and placed into the one body. Now, the one body is a metaphor that talks about the church. And when an individual is baptized into Christ, God places him in his church. And it doesn't matter who we are, whether we were Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, all being obedient to the teaching of the Spirit and the Word of God. And then he goes on and makes a further point. He says in verse 14, For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. He's saying that each one of these bodily members are important. They serve a specific function. And we simply cannot say that one is more important than the other because each has its own talents and skills and each is to be used for the unity of the body. You see, the body is a unit. And even though there are several different members of the body, still they all work together in concert with one another. It would be a bad army indeed and a fruitless one if one group said they were going to do one thing and another group decided they would do something else. And David's army would never really be successful with that kind of operation. But they were very successful with God's help because they worked in unison with each other and together accomplishing what God wanted them to accomplish, the defeating of the enemies of God. Then later, by Solomon and God's help, the temple is built. And so it is with the New Testament army the church of the living God. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is important. And no one could say, well, I'm more important than you are, or you're more important than that one is, because we're all part of this body. We've all been baptized into this New Testament church, the church that belongs to Christ, having read the gospel from the scriptures revealed by God the Holy Spirit, And now we were motivated by faith to obey it. And we're all part of this one body. And every one of us is valuable and important for the working together of the body of Jesus Christ. 
We've got to work together. It would be an odd body indeed if the foot were to say, I'm not a part of the hand, I'm more important than the hand. That's his point by verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I'm in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If you don't mind, may I take an excursion here very briefly. What did he say about that body? God arranged it. He did not say that that body evolved over millions of years of time. He said God did it at one time. And if you look at the force of the tense of the verb, God arranged it. He did it. And it didn't take millions and millions and millions of years for the body to develop and to grow into what we realize today. No. God created man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden, eastward into Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. And I believe it just exactly the way it was written, that God created man. He caused a great sleep to come upon man, and he created Eve from the rib of man. And so was her place for the rest of her life. Side by side together, husband and wife, so shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God brought it all into being. It wasn't the result of evolution of the long, drawn-out uh, development from lower forms of life to a higher form of life. There's no evidence for that. Please excuse me on that excursion. But God set and arranged man in the very beginning. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there's one body. We all have these differing parts, and yet we have the responsibility to work in unison with each other. We've got to work together. If we're going to be the efficient, effective body of Christ God wants us to be, we're going to have to work together. And you can't say, I'm better than you are. And you can't say, you're better than I am. And I can't say I'm more important than you are. All of us work together in harmony. What kind of body would it be if the left foot said, I want to go that way, and the right foot said, I want to go that way? Well, that would be absurd. The metaphor is trying to help us understand in a wonderful way our relationship to Christ and our relationship to each other. That relationship surely is one that we need to be unified in because I'll tell you why. We're in a great spiritual battle. 
The battle is not for geographic land or material. The battle is for our souls. The most important thing that we possess is our soul. There's nothing more important than that. Jesus said, if you gain the whole world in exchange for your soul, you've made a bad bargain. Why, the soul's worth more than all the world. One soul's worth more than all the world. God created man a living soul, distinguishing him from all other created beings. Man is a created being, but there's a little spark of God inside of man, a thing which we might call, the Bible calls the soul, that lives forever and forever. And God holds us responsible for our souls. We're in a great spiritual battle out there. We've got to realize that. Seems as though as time goes along, the battle gets fierce. It gets more fierce and more fierce all the time. Satan. We have a determined foe, which I'll get to in a moment. Wants to destroy your soul. And he's won too many battles. People have allowed him to walk in and take over. But the spiritual battle is where we say no to him. And as a group of God's people, the spiritual army of Christ, is going to take all of us working together in a unified way, encouraging and helping and building each other up. You see, we're involved in a kingdom. And I want to tell you something. I know it sounds like some old fogey up here, but it's true. We're in the fight of our life. It's the fight for our souls. And we're in the fight for our children's souls. The fight for the souls of our homes. The fight for the souls of the church, the congregation of Christ. It's the fight of our life that we're facing here. And even though we live in such an affluent time and things seem to go so well, You know, one of the nicest things I've got, garage door opener. Things go so well. I can punch a button and the garage goes up, door goes up, door comes down. Isn't life like that? we got so many conveniences, and we think things are going so well, but what about our souls? The real battle is for our souls we face and are engaged in a great spiritual battle. David was able to accomplish the victory, will be able to accomplish the victory with God as our helper and with each other helping us. We have a king. David is not our king. Jesus Christ is our king. And he's given us responsibility to follow his orders and he's told us what a great battle we're facing because we have a determined enemy. If you look at the morality of our day, it just seems as though it's rock bottom. Just think about what life was like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Maybe if you can, you can think back 40 years, 50 years. How our nation was so different back then than what it is now. How our culture was so different then from what it is right now. We're in a spiritual battle here. 
because we have a determined enemy. He never lets up. He always looks for the opportunity to overtake us and to overcome us. And if he will not overtake us, he'll do his best to overtake our loved ones, our kinfolk, those who are near and dear to us. You know, the sons of Issachar were very smart people. As I mentioned already, they were a type of astrologers. And they could look at the signs of the times and see. You know, elders need to be people like that. Deacons need to be people like that. Preachers need to be people like that. Not astrologers, I don't mean that. But I mean the ability to look at the signs of the times and the ability to look out there and see what's going on and to see how the enemy is trying to attack the church of the living God, how it's trying to attack the souls of men and women, and to be astute uh, people who not only have knowledge about such things, but understanding on how to handle people and how to deal with people and how to help people as best as they possibly can. The church of the Lord needs every talented individual, but it needs great leaders like elders to lead the church, to lead the army, and to see where the enemy is and to see how best to approach the enemy. And it needs deacons to facilitate that matter. It needs preachers to help people understand what the will of the word will and word of God really is, to understand that. Now, the Bible will give us the knowledge. If we'll turn to the Word of God, we'll get the knowledge and the understanding. As was prayed already today, we stand before the presence of the great God of heaven and earth. Isn't that amazing to me? I mean, he created galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, and here we are today worshiping that God who loves me and cares for me, is concerned about me. How much am I concerned about him? Now, I'm transitioning just a little bit in the lesson. Not only are we is it important for each one to be of value, but now it's also important for each one to use their skills and their abilities for the benefit of the body, for the benefit of the army. If it's true, and it surely is the case, that we're engaged in a great spiritual warfare and we face a determined enemy, does that not also emphasize the importance of every one of us using our skills to the benefit of the other? Not that we have the idea, well, I'm better than you, and you're better than him, and that kind of thing. Each one of us are a value as to the unit, as to the body of Christ. But each one of us has an obligation, a responsibility, to use the skills and the abilities that God has given us so that we can help. Now, how many times have we sat in worship service? How many times have you taken the Lord's Supper? I bet if we took a tally here, and I don't know how we'd measure that at all, but if we measured that, I bet we could come up with, we probably have eaten 100 pounds of unleavened bread here through our lifetime, all of us together. And how many gallons of fruit of the vine have we taken? Lord's Supper after Lord's Supper after Lord's Supper. And how many worship services have you attended in your life? Now, if you started worshiping God at an early age, 10 or 12, I bet you've been 50,000 worship services. Has it changed you? 
How many prayers have you heard men pray when they got up in the front of the congregation and very sincerely and very reverently would pray before God? Have those prayers helped you? And how many Bible classes have we set in? Countless Bible classes. What has that done for you? Have you allowed that to influence you? Have you allowed that to make you what God wants you to be? The skilled, valuable child of God for the body that you're capable of being. There is a mission. Jesus gave a great mission to the church. Seek and save that which is lost. And that mission we must fulfill. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Well, the last thing that Jesus said on this earth was go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Everybody deserves to hear the gospel message. Everybody deserves to hear how sinful they are and what God wants them to do to repent of their sins and confess their faith in Christ, that he's the Christ, that he's been raised from the dead, that he lives with God forever and ever and to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Everybody needs to hear that. How many have I led? How many have I helped? How many have I taught? How many have I brought to Christ? How serious have I been about the mission of the church and fulfilling that mission? We're in a wonderful opportunity to help change the world. We just need to do it. We are a mighty army with great skills. I'll tell you another great mission. Not only is it to teach people to obey the gospel and encourage them to do that, but to keep them saved. And that's just as important. We've got to help people understand how important it is to grow in Christ and to mature and help other people do the same thing. Keeping the saved saved is such an important work for each of us to do because every congregation has problems, don't they? Every congregation faces it. New Testament churches face problems. Keeping the safe saved was an invaluable work. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, verse 10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. What a great verse of Scripture that is. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 and he's telling them there, you got problems at Corinth and you need to get this division out and you need to be acting like a one body, a unit working together in concert one with another. I'm in chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, verse 1, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
He's talking about the church there. I'm reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a problem that the church at Corinth was facing. It's a monumental task, not only to preach the gospel and teach others to be saved by repenting of sin, confession, and being baptized, but to keep the saved saved, to encourage them and build them up and teach them and help them in such a way. And so Paul would say, you got problems at Corinth in chapter 5. You're taking each other uh, to, uh, you're, you're involved in immorality with one another, and this is something that is so flagrant, it wouldn't even be named among the Gentiles, but yet you're putting up with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 6, you got lawsuits one with another over petty, insignificant matters. They really don't matter about much, but yet you're going to court, a civilian type of court or a a worldly court in order for decisions. Don't you have wise men to settle these matters? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about marriage. And every one of us should take serious reflection and consideration over chapter 7. And then in chapter 11, he talks about the problems they had with regard to the Lord's Supper. Of all things, they weren't getting that right. He's trying to keep the church saved and to help the church along the way. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts and the problems that they had with that. One of the great missions we have is to keep the church saved. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. We got a great job on our hands here. Galatians 3 and 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Interesting way to start out a chapter. Who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit, having begun by the Spirit, are you now begin, being perfected by the flesh? They were having problems. What were they doing? Going back to the old way of doing things. The old Jewish way of doing things. Did you learn this by the law of Moses or did you learn this by the teaching of the Spirit of God? The battle is over our souls. The point is this. If you have talents and abilities, and we all do, and you're not using them for the benefit of the one body, then you ought to repent of that right now and get started. If you have abilities and talents, and we all do, repent of not using those for the benefit of the Lord. Start refining and developing those abilities and talents as best as you possibly can. And start using them in the battle for the souls of men. Now I think some people view heaven a little differently than what the Bible really describes. You know one of the favorite places for me, my favorite place growing up was going to my grandmother's house. And she would always be there and open the door. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. Y'all come on in. Do you think heaven's going to be like that? 
kind of like Grandma. No matter what I did or what I failed to do, I'm so happy to see you. You just come on in. I wonder if heaven will be like that, where we sit and sit and sit and then expect God, like Grandma, to say, Oh, I'm so happy to see you. You just come right on in. I don't think it's going to be like that. What it's going to be like, skilled soldiers, like David's. They could use either the left hand or the right. They could ford the Jordan when others couldn't. They could look at the signs of the times and know just exactly when to go out to battle and when not to. People who are skilled at accomplishing what God has given us to do. To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To be a part of that. To support that. To help that. And to help out the home congregation. To help build it. To help strengthen it. To help make it stronger and more vibrant. And more of a vital part. Letting our light shine before others. That they may see our good works. And glorify our Father which is in heaven. You see, we're in an army. Now the only way that you can do that. To be a part of that army to be a part of the church. And I've outlined briefly for you what that means. It means to obey the gospel of Christ, to repent of your sins and confess your faith, Romans 10, 9, and 10. To repent, change our way of life, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, receive forgiveness. What a wonderful blessing that is and what a wonderful opportunity that is. And be added to the army of the Lord. Paul uses this image of an army, the church being that, in Ephesians chapter 6. I'll not have the opportunity today to discuss that particular matter. But we've got to realize we face a great battle. But with God's help, we'll be victorious. Be a part of the body of Christ today. And use your skills and your talent to unify the body of Christ and to make it even more effective. Won't you do that today? Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.